Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado. We'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Ministry Watch brings you news about Christian ministries as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, news that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective. And our goal is to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, we look at St. Jude's Children's Hospital. It's not a Christian ministry, but a lot of evangelicals donate to the organization, and the money is not always going to help children. We also look at a shakeup at World Magazine. And finally, I offer a few thoughts about the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. We begin today with news from San Antonio, Texas, where a rally at a church has drawn criticism for its use of the controversial Let's Go Brandon chant, and for other reasons. Yeah, on Saturday, uh, a crowd packed the sanctuary at Cornerstone Church in San Antonio, Texas. By the way, that is John Hagee's church. Some of our listeners might know uh, the church by the pastor's name. And they were singing hymns to Jesus, but it was also a uh, gathering of who's who among Christian nationalists, anti-vaxxers and others who were telling Joe Biden to go to hell. And I mean that literally. The event made headlines thanks to former Trump National Security Advisor Michael Flynn urging the United States to embrace one religion. Yeah, that's right. But the video that went viral from the event included the chant, Let's Go Brandon, which is a workaround, you might say a euphemism for an obscene anti-Biden chant. The Reawaken America Tour, which began in Tulsa in the spring of 2021 and ends in mid-January in Phoenix, has been organized by a man named Clay Clark, host of the Thrive Time Show podcast. It's a three-day event, and it's been featuring uh, such speakers as the My Pillow CEO, Michael Lindell, Alex Jones of InfoWars, and the anti-vax champion, Sherry Tenpenny. The event almost immediately generated a strong backlash. Yeah, as you might imagine, liberal secular groups objected to the use of a church for an event that had obvious political implications, but a lot of conservative Christians also spoke out against the event. Uh, Dr. Al Moeller of Southern Seminary, uh, the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, condemned uh, the use of the Let's Go Brandon chant in a church. Mark Tooley of the Institute for Religion and Democracy wrote an editorial explaining that for Christians, the end does not justify the means. In other words, even if you agree with with the overall aims of Reawaken America to use vulgar expressions and demeaning language, according to Mark Tooley, simply should not be acceptable for Christians. And by the way, we've reprinted Mark Tooley's editorial on the Ministry Watch website. One of the speakers and performers at the event was Sean Fecht. He's been a busy man lately, overseeing a network of for-profit businesses, nonprofit organizations, and political activities. Yeah, that's right. And our reporter, Steve Raby, took a close look at both Sean Fecht and some of his activities. Um, for those of you who 
don't quite know who he is. He's 38 years old, a worship leader, political activist, a former Republican candidate. He ran for Congress in California and the father of five. Uh, he's best known for his 120 city Let Us Worship tour. That was a tour that he called Pro Worship protest events against COVID restrictions and racial unrest. But he's also raised more than $300,000 for his congressional campaign. He founded a political group called Hold the Line to carry on the momentum from that run for political office. He operates a music business for his musical recordings, and he's also founded a charity called the Light a Candle Project that has raised over $500,000 in in each of the last two years. Light a Candle has announced successfully raising more than $200,000 for its Afghan Emergency Relief Fund designated to meet the needs of the persecuted church in Afghanistan. Yeah, but that charity has no experience in Afghanistan and has provided no concrete plans for how they're actually going to help the persecuted church there. Now, make no mistake, Afghanistan has many needs, but there are also many qualified groups working there. Um, but following the U.S. military's abrupt pullout this summer, Afghanistan has emerged as a powerful fundraising bonanza for groups that have not worked there before. They may lack the ability to use the donations wisely. In fact, we reported earlier stories about Glenn Beck's charity, which raised more than $30 million in three days to airlift people from the country, but has since failed to provide a detailed report of what it actually did with those funds. That could be the case here at Light a Candle. Ministry Watch reached out to Light a Candle, but we received no response. Um, a look at the charity's financial reports, though, does raise questions about the efficiency of its work and the integrity of its claims. Uh, for example, in 2020, it raised more than $500,000, but spent only about $244,000, far less than half of its income, on program services. The bottom line is that Ministry Watch recommends that donors withhold gifts to Sean Feck's Light a Candle organization until it is more forthcoming with financial information. Now, another organization that tiptoes on the line between ministry and political activism is a group called My Faith Votes. Yeah, My Faith Votes uh, bills itself as a nonpartisan movement that motivates, equips, and activates Christians in America to vote in every election. That sounds like a worthy goal. Yeah, but My Faith Votes, which was founded in 2015, has aggressively promoted Donald Trump to evangelical voters since it was founded in 2016. Uh, in fact, that was whenever there was this uh, pretty famous event called A Conversation with Donald Trump and Ben Carson, which was designed to introduce then-candidate Donald Trump to hundreds of conservative Christian leaders. Uh, in a press release, the group said that the meeting would strengthen relationships and build unity before the 2016 election, but it has never organized any similar meetings with Democrat candidates. Well, Warren, what's wrong with that? I mean, you don't really expect a political group to promote its opponent. I mean, do you? Well, no, but again, my faith votes 
says that it is not a political group. It claims to be nonpartisan. It raises money, in fact, as a Christian charity, not as a political action committee. And it's even a member of the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. And by the way, My Faith Votes has more than quadrupled in size between 2019 and 2020. In 2019, it had about $2.5 million in income. In 2020, now that's an election year, it had $12 million in revenue. That sort of a surge in cash during an election year is common for political groups, but not so common among Christian ministries. Now, I can imagine that some of our listeners might say, yeah, but groups on the left do this sort of thing all the time. So what about Reverend Jesse Jackson or Reverend Al Sharpton, who, um, you know, use liberal churches for their political activism? Well, that's absolutely right. And uh, the difference here, though, is most conservatives have, in fact, condemned those activities. Now, some conservatives are engaging in those very same activities that we previously criticized. You know, there's an old saying that the greatest danger a nation faces when it goes to war is the temptation to become what it is fighting against. I know some of our listeners might have seen the movie The Patriot, and in that movie, uh, Mel Gibson warned against the dangers of mob rule by saying that he was unwilling to trade one tyrant who is 3,000 miles away from 3,000 tyrants who are one mile away. In short, fighting for Christian values to have their place in the public square is really important. But how we fight, the way we fight, matters too. Warren, we need to take a break. But when we return, we take a look at one of the largest charities in the nation, St. Jude's Children's Hospital. It's not what many people think. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. Up next, a look at St. Jude Children's Hospital. And Warren, first of all, please explain why you wanted to post this story at the Ministry Watch site. I mean, after all, St. Jude's is not a Christian ministry. Well, it's a great question, and you are absolutely right. St. Jude's is not a Christian ministry, and it officially, in fact, claims no religious affiliation of any kind. But it has developed a strong following among evangelicals. Uh, Christian music star Amy Grant, for example, has been a spokesperson for the organization. And St. Jude's has been championed by Eric Trump, the son of the former president, on televangelist James Robinson's uh, nationally syndicated TV program. 
Well, that makes sense. So what's the problem at St. Jude's? Well, the short answer is that it has billions of dollars and doesn't appear to be helping nearly as many children as its marketing would lead you to believe. It raised, for example, $2 billion last year alone, and it makes a promise as part of its fundraising, which is pretty unique. It says this, families never receive a bill from St. Jude's for treatment, travel, housing, or food, because all a family should worry about is helping their child live. Wow, that's a very compelling message. Well, it is, and so compelling, in fact, that it has caused all this giving that we're talking about. The problem is that it tells only a part of the story. St. Jude's does, in fact, bill insurance, and in some cases, that means the government, as a part of their Medicare and Medicaid programs, for medical expenses, which in many cases actually covers the vast majority of the medical expenses. And in fact, a report by the investigative journalism group ProPublica found that St. Jude's Hospital has only 73 beds at the hospital, far fewer than other cancer hospitals, and they carefully screen the children that they admit. So even though it bills itself as a research hospital, less than half of its income goes to research and caring for patients combined, even though it has more than $5 billion in assets. In fact, ProPublica said that a whopping 30% of its income was actually spent on those emotional fundraising appeals that we've all seen on television. What does Ministry Watch say is an appropriate amount to spend on fundraising? Well, there's no single right answer. It kind of depends on the organization and what kind of work you do. But anytime that number goes above 10%, I start asking questions. 30% is just a massive amount, especially for an organization this large, which should be uh, getting some economies of scale. So what's the bottom line here? Well, if you're a donor to St. Jude's Children's Hospital, and I know a lot of our readers and listeners are because I've already heard from some of you uh, since we've posted this story on our website, you should read the article in full before you give more money to them. You can find the complete article. It's a from ProPublica, but we've gotten permission to republish it on our site, ministrywatch.com. Our next story involves our friends at World Magazine. Yeah, longtime editor of World Magazine, Marvin Alasky, has resigned, saying the media company's decision to launch an opinions section on its website without his backing was effectively a vote of no confidence in his editorial leadership. Marvin Alasky has been with the publication since 1994 as editor-in-chief. He told the New York Times that he is not interested in working for a conservative opinion magazine. There are lots out there that are already doing that, and it's not my vision for world, he told the New York Times in a phone interview. Warren, I know you have a long association with world. Do you have any thoughts about this resignation? Well, I do uh, many thoughts, and some of them, you know, are even maybe contradictory. Uh, My main thought is that I love Marvin Alasky, I love World Magazine, and I wish them both all the best in the future. Uh, I worked closely with Marvin when I was at World, and in a spirit of full disclosure, uh, I continue to work with World as I do my weekly listening-in podcast for World News Group. Uh, I've worked closely with Marvin to revive 
buys his classic book, Prodigal Press, a few years ago. So I am hardly a disinterested party in this situation, and I think it's important for our listeners to know that. It's also important to note that Marvin Olasky had planned to retire from World Magazine in a few months anyway, and that these recent events have merely accelerated that departure. That said, I don't want to downplay what's happening here. Marvin Alasky's contributions to the world have been greater than probably any other single person except world's founder, Joel Bells, who, in fact, hired Marvin Alasky. And even in the best of circumstances, Marvin's departure marks the end of an era at World Magazine. And Marvin Olasky's influence goes well beyond world. Well, it does. Uh, in fact, Ministry Watch's approach to journalism was informed significantly by Marvin Olasky and the team at World. Uh, I spent a number of years there and learned a lot of what I know about journalism from them. Uh, world also hosts uh, what it calls its World Journalism Institute, which, in which it trains young journalists and WJI alumni are in news organizations, both Christian and secular, all over the country. And Marvin Olasky is not the only recent departure from World Magazine. Yeah, that's right. Mindy Bells, who has been with the magazine since the beginning, 40 years ago, recently left. J.C. Derrick, who was the organization's deputy chief content officer, left a few months ago. And Now, don't get me wrong. There are still a lot of great people still at World, including uh, the new editor, Michael Renault, who I consider to be a close friend, and I know he's a great journalist. But there's no question there's been a bit of a brain drain there, and there will be a lot of rebuilding to do. Warren, let's look at one more story before we take another break, and that's the story of the Village Church in Dallas. It was a pioneer in the so-called multi-site approach to church growth, but they've since abandoned that model. Why and what happened there? Yeah, well, in 2017, uh, Village Church in Flower Mound, Texas, a suburb of uh, Dallas, uh, it's it, led by Pastor Matt Chandler, shifted directions, as you noted. It determined to spin off its multi-site locations into independent, freestanding, autonomous organizations. It was part of a move that they called Multiply. In July of this year, uh, the last of those uh, sites became their own independent congregation. Why did it take four years to complete this transition? Well, it's a great question, but transitioning five locations into separate congregations was a pretty significant undertaking. Um, one of their leaders said that it was a complex process that involved identifying pastors, uh, others in leadership, and also kind of segregating the membership of the congregations. There were some people that went to more than one site, and they had to kind of figure out, you know, which congregation they were actually a member of. Uh, campus pastors were not automatically chosen as the church's new lead pastor. and went, they had to go through a process of selection there. Additionally, the village church worked to ensure that each congregation had healthy, functioning elders, deacons, and staff before the split. I can see how that would take quite a bit of time. Yeah, and not only that, there were legal and operational aspects as well. Uh, for example, new incorporation documents, new bylaws, name change documents, website development also included transferring assets from sort of the mother church, you might say, out to the uh, new congregations. And although there were 
bumps in the road, most people involved um, say that it went pretty well. By the way, there were 15,000 people um, that were originally involved in the multi-site uh, church. 90% of them voted in favor of this split. And um, now the Dallas area has a half a dozen new autonomous gospel-centric and thriving churches, each now in a position to pursue ministry more suited to its membership and its community. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, here, Warren, we have to take another quick break. When we return, our weekly lightning round of ministry news. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host, Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. And Warren, we like to use this last little segment as a sort of lightning round of shorter news briefs. What's up first? Well, we have an interesting story on the website uh, this week about church architecture. You know, I've long been fascinated with church architecture, in part because of the great European cathedrals, which are just magnificent and really use architecture as a testimony uh, to the power and glory of God. But the past 50 years, well, not so much. Uh, We've been dominated by sort of big box mega church buildings that are kind of almost look like warehouses in some ways. This hasn't exactly been a golden age for church architecture. But Steve Upham is an architect in Houston, and he says that of the way a building is designed says a lot to the community about the people who live there and the God that they worship. Upham has built more than 300 churches now, and every project that he takes on, he said, is different and reflects, or at least should reflect, the beliefs and practices of the congregation who will be in that building. I really recommend this article to church leaders and to any church that thinks it might be building a building in the near to medium future. Buildings are a silent but eloquent testimony of who we are as a people, and getting that representation right can help a church be a real blessing to their communities. And not every church is building. Some are seeing the value of remaining small. Yeah, that's right. We just discussed, for example, the village church's unwinding of its multi-site model, uh, creating a bunch of smaller churches out of one big megachurch. And their actions may, in fact, be part of a growing appreciation for smaller churches rather than the super-size-me culture of the megachurch movement. Uh, now, that's not to say that this is all good news. According to a recently released Faith Communities Today study, Half of the congregations in the United States have 65 people or fewer, and two-thirds of all congregations have less than 100 people. Oh, those numbers are likely to be quite a surprise for a lot of people. 
Well, in fact, they were even a surprise to me, and I kind of follow these numbers. Um, now, I knew that most churches weren't mega churches, but uh, these numbers that I just quoted uh, really mark a, a significant change, even in the last 20 years. In 2000, uh, faith communities today did a survey that found that the median congregation had 137 people, and fewer than half of congregations had less than 100 people. So we're getting smaller even in the last few years. But there are virtues to small churches. Among them, people know each other. And in a small church, there's kind of no place to hide. You're often asked to assume leadership roles, and the development of leadership skills can be good for the individual, for the church, and for the community at large. Up next, Ministry Watch's tour of states continues. Yeah, we're now down to number 11 on our list of states, and that state is Oregon, uh, which is home to 17 Ministry Watch 1000 ministries. They have total revenue of about $880 million. Among those ministries, Medical Teams International and the Luis Palau Evangelistic Association. By the way, both of those ministries that I just mentioned are former winners of Ministry Watch's Shining Light Award. Now, finally, Warren, what ministries did Christina Darnell highlight in the Ministries Making a Difference column? Well, a couple that I want to mention here, uh, Set Free Ministries, the executive director there is uh, Dean Vandermey, and he says that he's seen an uptick in parents reaching out to his ministry to help their children as they talk about the impact of COVID-19. The ministry focuses on issues such as anxiety, depression, and fear, all from within the context of spiritual health. In October, in fact, the American Academy of Pediatrics was one of three organizations to declare a national emergency in children's mental health. And we also feature version this week. Uh, some of you might have the popular app downloaded on your phone, and you are not alone. They celebrated the 500 millionth download of its app last week, making it the first faith-based app to reach that milestone. The app originally started in 2008. It was one of the first 200 free apps available in the App Store, and it had, at that time, it expressed a desire to make Scripture accessible to everyone. The app includes Scripture in 2,600 different Bible versions. It also has Bible reading plans, prayer guides, and a whole lot more. Now, before we go, Warren, I wanted to mention that you appeared this week in the widely popular podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Anything you want to say about that? Well, yeah, that podcast has become something of a phenomenon, uh, typically appearing in the top 100 podcast, not religion and spirituality podcast, but all podcasts. And uh, because I appeared in the most recent episode of that podcast, I've just gotten a lot of emails and phone calls and text messages from uh, people uh, asking for more information about Mark Driscoll and about Mars Hill Church and about, you know, kind of the reporting that I did there. Uh, People asking me, too, what I thought of the podcast itself. So I just wanted to say that I devoted uh, an entire chapter to Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill Church in my book, Faith-Based Fraud. But we also republished that chapter on the Ministry Watch website. So you don't have to buy the book to read the chapter. You can just go to ministrywatch.com and type 
Mark Driscoll's name into the search engine, and that chapter will pop right up. I also want listeners to know that I think the rise and fall of Mars Hill is a remarkable achievement in podcasting. So I would say congratulations to Mike Cosper and the team at Christianity Today for this remarkable piece of work. It was an honor to be a part of it. Do you have anything else before we go? Well, two quick things. First, we'll be taking next week off from the podcast so we can enjoy the Thanksgiving holiday with our families. And at the risk of shameless self-promotion, I'd like to mention that we are rapidly coming up on year end. We have just six weeks to go before we hit 2022. And without belaboring the point too much, we need your financial support before year end. Ministry Watch is different from many other news sites in that we take no money from the organizations we cover. We take no advertising on our site. We have no paywall. All of our content is completely free, but we do depend upon the generosity of people who believe in what we do. And Natasha, I've got to say that if you're still listening to the two of us now, at the end of this podcast, you're either a glutton for punishment or you're a hardcore Ministry Watch fan. And if the latter is true, I hope that you'll consider a year-end gift so we can keep on doing what we do. Just go to ministrywatch.com and hit the donate button at the top of the page. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Guttard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Kim Roberts, Ann Steich, David Armstrong, Ryan Gabrielson, Mark Tooley, Bob Smetana, and Steve Raby. Special thanks to the Institute on Religion and Democracy blog, Juicy Ecumenism, for contributing materials to this week's program. I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.